0: welcome to the south fellowship church podcast here at south fellowship we exist to help people live in the way of jesus with the heart of jesus wherever you're listening from today we hope you're encouraged by this week's message welcome friends great to see you today how are you doing yeah, I love it. My name's Alex. I'm one of the pastors here, and if you're visiting, uh, we're so glad that you did. Uh, especially on this week where New Series Sunday, I love New Series Sunday. There are all the possibilities uh, are there right now, and we get to enter into this series. that, that its heartbeat it, At its heartbeat is a, is a relationship series. N- now, I know there's some moments where we say we're going to start talking about relationships, and, and some people are like, really? Really? Do, do we have to talk about that one? Dear friend asked me, so you said you're doing a relationship series. Uh, and I said, yes. And they said, how long is the relationship series? And I said, six weeks. And they said, I'll see you in seven weeks. Like, <laughs> so, And now I get to find out if they're, they're here. Like, you know, I just... After this week, I'll know whether they were serious or not. But relationships—they're they're challenging. They—they they have these moments of angst to them. This week, my, my family mistakenly entered into a relationship, a new relationship, with a puppy. Uh, it, be, it became became an option to have this this dog, and and my kids came and looked at me with this expression of like, "Please, can we have this dog?" And I said, "No," and their faces didn't change, which was how I planned it go. So in, in my world, like I was like, if I just say no, they'll they'll be like, okay. Dad, no puppy. But no, they kept doing that face that said, no, we will get the puppy. And so we said, we'll foster this dog. And it's been a disaster. Um, It pooped on the rug twice before six o'clock this morning. Um, And so now it's got to a point where even the kids are like, you know what, the dog should go. Uh, And I'm like, "Like, if you can get kids to a point where they don't want you uh, as a dog, that's like superhuman achievement. That's really impressive stuff. So the puppy, goes today and all will be restored to peace apart from the fact it's a house with four kids, which always has a bunch of stuff going on with it. Relationships, they have those moments, right? They, 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 we butt up against each other. We, we wrestle with each other. We struggle with each other. Any human relationship has that tendency to it. As usual, if you have questions about anything I say today, if you disagree with something I say today, I would love to hear it, and you could be right and I could be wrong, so feel free to send in questions, and Aaron and I will do our best to answer them uh, at th- Thursday at 11 o'clock. You'll be busy because everyone's busy at Thursday on Thursday at 11 o'clock, but you can catch up and watch it uh, online anytime you want, and we'd love your interaction. Between You and Me is the series that we're going to follow all the way through this season uh, that in the church calendar is called Eastertide. It's this wonderful season post resurrection. Jesus has died, has been risen again, and this season runs us all the way down to Pentecost Sunday. So this series will last six weeks. Seventh week is May 28th, Pentecost Sunday. We'll celebrate this moment where the Spirit is given to the church, this day that people have talked about as the birth. Of the church. When Jesus is raised from the dead, the church is maybe two or three women. When the disciples finally get on board, it becomes maybe 12 or 13 people. On Pentecost Sunday, it's a hundred. People and by the end of Pentecost Sunday, all those years ago, it's 3,000 people, and then it just explodes to the point that around 250 AD, the church is now in the like the 20 like million people category or I something. It's just everywhere, and people are even starting to say, "Do you know what?" Is there a point where we don't have to tell people this story anymore because everybody will know it and everybody will believe it? That's the dramatic change this church brings to the world around it. And so we celebrate Pentecost Sunday by dunking people in water. And if you're kind of new to church, how many places do you get to go where you see that happen? There's not many of them today and we'll celebrate new life by filling a tank with water and dunking people in. And so if that's you, If you feel like something's changed, uh, I have experienced Jesus in some way. Maybe you got baptized as a child and that wasn't really your decision. You kind of felt like it was chosen for you, but maybe you've experienced Jesus and you want to join in new life uh, and we want to celebrate with you if you do. So that's this coming seven weeks and throughout that time we get to land here. This is kind of my thesis uh, with relationships. Relationships are hard work. So let's work hard at our relationships. I think there's this fallacy sometimes in life that if something's enjoyable, it shouldn't be hard work. And yet, almost everything that we do tells us that that's just not true. You might love playing music. You might love a particular instrument. Do you have to work hard to play that instrument well? Absolutely doesn't mean it's not enjoyable. You might love rock climbing. Do you have to work hard to become a great rock climber? Absolutely, like almost anything that we do for fun, to be good at it, you actually have to put in some work, and and I would suggest that relationships, any relationship is no different. Now, of course, there's there's multiple facets to a relationship, right? There's platonic relationships, there's family-based relationships, there's acquaintanceships, and we'll land most of the time on the idea of romantic relationships with the idea that there might be some life lessons for every other type of relationship too. So as we get into week one, here are a couple of thoughts to kind of help us frame this conversation. I suspect that as Americans we struggle to, to differentiate at times between sex and love. Like this is from the social network, 2010 movie, read what's going on here. This is what drives life at college. Are you having sex or aren't you? It's why people take certain classes, sit where they sit, do what they do in the hope that in the end of it, they might actually meet somebody. Starts with sex, moves to relationship, kind of gray as to which of those areas it lands on. The movie Moulin Rouge, one of the beautiful quotes, love is like oxygen, love is a many splendid thing, love lifts you up where we belong. All you need is love, it's the Beatles, right? But Moulin Rouge wrestles with that tension between love and sex. And what I would suggest in our society is this, we're trying to hold on to two things, at the same time. We're trying to hold on to the idea that actually you can have just sex with anybody at any time, That that's actually just a normal thing. Friends is that culture, right? It's six impossibly good-looking people. It's five impossibly good-looking people and Chandler at the bottom, But, but it's a little friends joke for those of you that were part of the generation. Uh, it's the, the theory behind it is, well, actually, it doesn't matter too much in the end. Like They all end up with different people within the group at different points. So we have that as a way of living. And then we also want to hold on to the idea of happily ever after. That, that actually there can be this moment of, yes, we crossed over a line and now it's just plain sailing from here. There's the, there's the thing before and then there's the big wedding. Last year, Americans alone spent $50 billion on weddings, on that moment. The average wedding now costs $30,000, And on average, 115 people attend a wedding. That means the average cost of a wedding is about $300 a person. And it was only back in the 90s that poor Steve Martin complained about how terrible it was that his daughter's wedding was $250 a head when he was terrified at the idea it might be $150 a head. And now, that's just below average. Now wedding costs are out of proportion. They get more and more expensive for this one big day. That 40-something percent of the time ends in divorce. You have Christians on the left there. 40% of Christian marriages end in divorce, although 84% of Christians get married. 46% of people that would describe themselves as atheist or agnostic get divorced, although only 65% get married in the first place. Still a huge percentage find themselves following this moment, this big moment, with divorce. Now, caveat. If you have a part of your past that has a relationship that you say, man, That ended up there, and it still hurts. None of this is supposed to make you feel guilty about that. The past is the past, whether it's 10 years ago, whether it's one year ago. What Jesus does brilliantly and consistently with people is he meets them where they're at and says, there are new possibilities that are unfolding from this. No matter what has happened, no matter what has been, there is something, some pathway that Jesus has for you and for I, that is his consistent good news We're invited into something new. So wherever you've been, whatever life has looked like for you, Jesus seems to present new possibilities. But it seems to me that if we believe our story, if we believe that following Jesus has this change in us and we start to be different people, it should affect our relationships as much as any other part of us. And perhaps this is the challenge, this is the tension there. Sometimes what I wonder is this, is that many of us have said we believe in an event that Jesus was part of, a death and a resurrection. But I wonder if sometimes, if we're honest, we haven't really said, I I wanna be discipled by Jesus. I wanna be apprenticed by Jesus, I want to learn how he says to live, and and I want to live that way. Uh, G.K. Chesterton, the British writer said this, the Christian ideal has not been tried and found wanting, it's been found difficult and left untried been found difficult and left untried. It seems Jesus invites us into living different kind of lives to how the general pattern of the world is, and that's what we'll explore in some of this. Relationships are hard work, so let's work hard at our relationships is something you'll hear over and over again. But to, to kind of get us into this series, I want to ask you a question. Have you ever experienced rejection? Have you ever experienced rejection? Maybe from the person next to you. I don't know, like, like it's okay. We're all, we're all friends here. How have you experienced rejection, specifically in that dating context of, I went up to someone and said, hey, would you like a drink? Uh, And there was an answer that you didn't want to hear. Now, maybe some of you have to work harder than others to think back to when there was a dating situation, and that's okay, too, but most people experience this. Uh, Apparently, this guy, Robert Redford, never did. Uh, There was this moment where he was in a movie, and the director wanted him to, to kind of, like, give some, like... Acting around the idea of I, I was rejected, I'm, I'm kind of kind of love lust or whatever the expression is, and and so he gave him this kind of like prompt. He said, just imagine like you've struck out with a girl at a bar, and Robert Redford looks at him with this blank expression. <laughs> it's like, it's like what what do you mean? And it's like well, imagine like you went up to someone and said, would you like to have a drink with me? And they said no. And Robert Redford said, huh, that's never happened to me before. Like, I mean, you look at Robert Redford, of course it didn't happen to him with his blue eyes and his blonde hair. But most of us have been down that journey if we were involved in any dating scene whatsoever. And there's, of course, some answers that you might hear, answers that are rejections. I like you as a friend. You've got friend-zoned, my friend. There's never a good place to be in. How about this one? I'm concentrating on my career. Who concentrates on their career, really? I mean, is that, a, is that a thing, is that an excuse? Sometimes it's got a poetic bent to it. How about this one? Uh, roses are red, violets are blue, I'd rather be dead than stuck with you. Ouch. And then finally, this one that is, that is, that is particularly famous, right? It's not you, it's me. And yet, there's a core of truth behind that idea sometimes, right? Relationships are a collision of you and me. Any relationship, a relationship is a collision of two people that have their own way of thinking, their own desires for how their life will look, their own particular understanding of the world, their own faith, their own background. And those two things come together and they cause tension every single time. There is a me part to relationship, and there is a you part to relationships, and those two have to work together. And somewhere there's this space in between where we're going to spend a lot of our time this series. There's that Venn diagram that the two overlap, and that's where you learn to live with people in relationship. Well, but as a kind of twist, after saying we're gonna talk about relationships, today we're not actually going to talk that much about relationships. Today we're gonna land somewhere in that, that me place. Because Jesus is asked to talk about relationships. And then he says something that I would suggest almost no Jewish person of his time would agree with. That almost every Jewish person would have said, Jesus, when you say this, that goes against all of our history all of our understanding about the way the world works. And I think you're wrong. So here we go, Matthew chapter 19. If you wanna follow along, I'll read it. We'll come back and go verse by verse together. Matthew 19, verse one, when Jesus had finished saying these things, he left Galilee and went into the region of Judea to the other side of the Jordan. Large crowds followed him and he healed them there. Some Pharisees came to him to test him, they asked, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any and every reason? Haven't you heard, haven't you read, he replied, that at the beginning the creator made them male and female? And he said, for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. Why then, they asked, did Moses command that a man give his wife a certificate of divorce and send her away? Jesus replied, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives because your hearts were hard, but it was not that way from the beginning. I tell you that everyone who divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality and marries another woman, commits adultery. The disciples said to him, if this is the situation between a husband and wife, it is better not to marry. Jesus replied, not everyone can accept this word, but only those to whom It has been given. Jesus is asked a question as he is often asked questions. Jesus is asked, give us your uh, opinion on this subject. Now, when we hear that, one of the things that we might miss is the fact that Jesus, when he speaks into these things, is speaking into debates that predate his life on earth by lots of years. And when he's asked a question about marriage, it's just like today, you or I might be asked a question on, like, how do you feel about uh, about abortion? How do you feel about taxation? How, how do you feel about small government? Any of those issues, this kind of issue for Jewish people in the first century was just as important as any of those issues might be for us today. So when we read it, We have to read it through that lens. Essentially, people are coming to Jesus and saying, think about the modern issue of the day, Jesus. We're talking about marriage, we're talking about divorce. What do you think about that? Is it okay, or is it not okay? And that's what's going on here. When Jesus had finished saying these things, He left Galilee and went to the region of Judea, to the other side of the Jordan. Large crowds followed him there, and he healed them there. Jesus is the cultural moment that is occurring. He is the person the the crowds are coming to see, and everywhere he goes, a crowd follows, and everywhere he goes and the crowd follows, healings happen and teaching happens, and some Pharisees, some religious leaders came to test him. The question has a purpose. It's part of the cultural milieu. They asked, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any and every reason? In the generation before Jesus, two huge, huge, they're not big people, two scholars of huge reputation have appeared. One's called Hillel, and Hillel comes from a particularly poor background. He's brilliant, though, so brilliant that they, re- they get rid of the tax on or the, the payment for studying at the rabbinical school because if they keep it, Hillel can't come. And everybody says, no, you need to study and you need to lead us into wisdom. And so Hillel comes along and, and he presents a more liberal way of following the God of the Jewish people. And then around the same time, a guy called Shammai appears and he comes along and he presents a more conservative way. Shammai is particularly concerned about the Romans that are in town and says, if we look like them, then no one will know our story is true. So he says, we've got to look as different to them as possible. And these two scholars with their different views are actually pretty good friends too, they, they have great debates, they have humorous debates, but their students that come after them create these huge divides in the culture. Does it sound like, you know, kind of like what we're experiencing today, right? And so when the Pharisees come to Jesus and say, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any and every reason, really they're saying, Jesus, these two scholars say two different things. Who do you side with? Who do you say is right? Now, Jesus is unique in his time because he never says things like, oh, you've heard this scholar say, or you've heard that scholar say. What makes Jesus different is his ability to say, no, I'm telling you this, this is my experience. I'm telling you because I know my Father and I know what he wills for you and for the world around you. But, inevitably, when asked about an issue, even if you're speaking from your own opinion, you're still gonna land on one side of the issue. And so constantly Jesus is asked, kind of where do you land? Conservative with Shammai or, or liberal with Hillel? Now when I use words like conservative and liberal, this doesn't necessarily mean that Jesus would be either of those things today, but in his day there was conservative and there was liberal and almost every single time Jesus lands on the liberal side. Almost every single time in the debates, he lands on Hillel's side, except for in relationships, except around sexuality, except there. There he lands with Shammai. There he lands on the conservative side of how society should look and how people should live. So when Jesus is asked, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any and every reason? His answer is... Haven't you read that at the beginning the creator made the male and female? For this reason a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife and the two will become one flesh. So they are no longer two but one flesh. Therefore what God has joined together let no one separate. Jesus brings this particularly high view of marriage and says no, this is, this is a sacred thing. This is a distinct and special thing. Don't treat it casually. And the Pharisees, as they often do, well, they have a pushback on this because they want to go back to Moses and and ask a question. Why then, they asked, did Moses command that a man give his wife a certificate of divorce and send her away? According to the Pharisees, they say Moses made divorce pretty easy. Why can't it just continue like that? All you have to do is give a certificate to say that that the woman is free to marry another man. and, And why can't it just carry on like that? Now, you may already have picked up on this that everything is written from this particular perspective. This was a society in which the idea that a woman might not be married just was completely foreign. Who who would look after her? Who, Who would protect her? Was the cultural understanding, very different from the world that we live in today, and so everything is colored by that language. According to the Pharisees, they would say, well, you can give a woman a certificate of divorce, and then another man can come and marry her. She's got possibilities. She's got a future. Isn't divorce and and any ban on it just to stop a woman being left in that kind of situation? Why can't we just continue on with this? Constantly when the Pharisees come to Jesus and ask his opinion on the law, what they seem to be saying is this, tell us exactly what we have to do so we don't go any further, but we can go right up to the edge and then stop. If, if we're not supposed to carry more than 20 pounds on the Sabbath, tell us, because then we can carry 19.9999 recurring and, and life will be good. We don't want to break anything, but we want to be able to do as much stuff as we can. That seems to be their attitude towards things. And, and here they want to say, look, we want a divorce. We don't want to have to stay in a relationship that we're not happy in. Can't you make it possible for that to be the case? And Jesus replied, when Moses gave you this law, when Moses permitted this, when he permitted you to divorce your wives, it was because your hearts were hard But it was not that way from the beginning. I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another woman commits adultery. According to Jesus, this is supposed to stay. Marriage is supposed to be sacred. It's important. But then the conversation's gonna twist. Because it seems up until now that Jesus, it's been Jesus on marriage, Jesus on how important marriage is, on the sanctity, the sacredness of marriage. And then for just a second, it seems at least to a Jewish reader that it's suddenly Jesus against marriage. Suddenly gonna seem like it's Jesus against marriage. His disciples ask him this question or make this statement that's really a question of their rabbi, of their teacher. If this is the situation between a husband and wife, if it's this like locked in, if you have to keep the relationship, if it's this important, this sacred Jesus, it is better not to marry. And to that statement, every Jewish people for at least a 1,000 years before would have said no. How can it be better not to marry? How can you consider not getting married? If a woman doesn't marry, where does she go when her parents die? Who will look after her? What if she doesn't have any brothers? Who will keep her safe? And if a man doesn't marry, how will he have an heir? How will he continue to, to, to for his clan to grow, his family to grow? Like how can you do anything? How can you exist without marriage for at least a thousand years before Jesus teaches? Marriage has been the norm. Everybody got married. And if you weren't, well, something was wrong. There was some kind of thing going on that wasn't right. Everybody got married. Nobody didn't get married. And Jesus replied, not everyone can accept this word, but only those to whom it has been given. In the midst of a conversation around marriage, Jesus makes singleness an option. Jesus makes singleness an option in a way that no society had ever seen it as an option before. The classic Jewish view of marriage can be kind of described in this Passage from the book of Ruth, two women, the daughter-in-law of Naomi, lose their husband in a tragic situation. And what does Naomi wish for them? What's her dream for them, her hope for them? Go back, each of you, to your mother's home. May the Lord show you kindness as you have shown kindness to your dead husbands and to me. May the Lord grant that each of you will find rest in the home of another husband. Her best case scenario for her daughters-in-law in the midst of their grief was that they would remarry because there were no other options. Marriage had been seen in this way for a thousand years. It was always heterosexual. It was always covenantal. There was an agreement between the two parties. It was essential and it was central. And suddenly Jesus seems to remove the bottom two words and change them for something else. According to Jesus, marriage is still those first two things, but now, it's monogamous, something that it never had been in the Jewish history, and it's got this permanence to it. It can't just be broken. Jesus creates this particularly high view of marriage, and with that incredibly high standard, he suddenly opens up this possibility that someone might say, no, that that's not for me. Jesus institutes a change in the position marriage would hold in his community. He removes its status as central, essential while demanding it be monogamous and permanent marriage had always been the center of everything and now suddenly there's a possibility that it's not to give you a picture of just how important marriage was in the jewish world i wanted to show you this story this is the king of swaziland where women outnumber men by a large percentage and so what he recently said is this every man has to marry at least five women at least five women, and if he doesn't, he'll go to jail. (laughs) Now this this isn't to criticize them as a society, this is to say this reflects better than we could possibly understand a Jewish understanding of marriage. Because his principle behind this is, what will happen to these women if there are no men married to them to protect them? Different world, different society. So from his perspective, he says, no, we've got to make sure Everybody has a husband, there can be no exceptions. That was very typical for most cultures in Jesus' time, and now suddenly, out of nowhere, Jesus is creating a possibility that men and women might say no to marriage, might actually choose to stay single. Jesus elevates singleness. Jesus elevates singleness. And isn't that something that we need to know for a few reasons. One, you might be single by choice or not by choice. And you need to know that Jesus sees you as an equal and valuable member of his community in a time when, if we're honest, the church has acted more like the Jewish community of Jesus' time. We've taken people out for dinner and said, wow, you're not married? Did you not meet the right person? Yet almost implying, is there something wrong with you? It's been repeatedly there in our language. We've, we've had these kind of conversations. We've taken people out and set them up in awkward situations because it baffles us that someone might choose to be single, and yet Jesus elevates singleness as this reasonable and perhaps preferred choice. And then there's a second reason that many of us, if we're honest, may not like to think about. Because every single one of us in a relationship, in a marriage, in this room right now, well, 50% of that group will be single again at some point. Unless this particular situation happens where two people die at the same time together, at some point, those of us that are in that marriage camp, well, one of us will end up being single again at some point. And so we need to know that then we're chosen and valued and important in God's kingdom that we actually matter. I've asked my mom to send me a picture of my grandpa and my grandma. They both passed away. My granddad or grandpa was 25 years older than my grandma. They got married when she was 25 and he was 50 and they both said they were the love of each other's life. She Uh, lived until she was nearly 90 and he passed away when he was in his 70s. They were married for about 20 years. And so she was single for 65 years of her life and married for 20 years of her life. Her singleness massively outweighed her married period. She needed to know that she mattered as a single person, that she had this place in God's kingdom. Now, a little caveat for you. Singleness in God's kingdom, when Jesus presents and elevates singleness, he doesn't elevate the singleness that we might see in society today. I found this beautiful quote by a journalist who expressed the modern view of singleness. She said this, singleness equals complete freedom, guilt-free sex, and lots of money. When Jesus talks singleness, that isn't what he portrays. In actual fact, in Jesus' language, singleness is always synonymous with celibacy and abstinence, two really old fashioned words, and they're old fashioned because we don't have any similar words we really use in society today because we are baffled that anybody could choose that. Lifestyle. Jesus pictures singleness as this conscious, conscious choice towards celibacy and towards abstinence. But he also presents it as this perfectly reasonable and perhaps preferred option of how to live. For the first 1,500 years of the church, singleness was respectable, recommended, and revered. Until the Reformation came along, the single people were the ones that sat at the front of the church. That in itself is hard for us to understand because people are terrified of the front of the church in our modern culture. We've got, we've got some stalwarts at the front, but other than that, often the rows are empty. But, but for 1,500 years, sitting at the front was what people chose to do, and the ones that were invited to do that were the single people. It was only after the Reformation that things flipped and the married people sat at the front and the singles were banished to some small part of the auditorium for 1,500 years. Singleness was valued, it was respectable, it was recommended, it was revered. It was given this elevation as a status by Jesus and that is almost unique to him and his teaching in that time period. People got married, the world revolved around marriage and yet Jesus said, no, singleness is a perfectly good option. So a question for us. Why? Why does Jesus do this? Why does he take marriage out of its position as the thing, as the only thing that matters? And why does it matter to those of us that are actually married and have chosen that pathway? I would suggest it's for a couple of reasons that follow on from each other. I would suggest that when he does this, Jesus elevates the one central relationship that can define us and it's not marriage, and it's not being a parent, and it's not having great friends. In actual fact, this allows Jesus to, central the one, to make central the one relationship that can define us, which is an invitation to relationship with him. Jesus says some very demanding things about how we treat other relationships. So demanding, in fact, that we've been trying to tone them down for a good couple of hundred years because they're just awkward to read if you're kind of new to faith. If anyone comes to me and does not hate father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, even their own life, such a person cannot be my disciple It's one of those moments where you want to say to Jesus, can you say less difficult things? It's really hard to pitch this faith of yours when you say things like that, but this is what he says, and he does it to say, no, if you're coming after me, if you're in relationship with me, this is the central thing. Relationship with me comes above every single other thing out there. Paul, one of Jesus' earliest followers, says this, I would like you to be free from concern I am saying this for your own good, not to restrict you, but that you may may live in a right way in undivided devotion to the Lord. Paul says that if you choose to be married, you're constantly going to be managing that Venn diagram. Constantly be trying to figure out where the overlap is, who needs what. That's going to be your burden to carry. He says, my hope is to, to free you from that. If you chose singleness, that's what you got. Free devotion to the Lord, that's exactly how he describes it. Undivided devotion to the Lord. Marriage, well that, that changes that. That colors all of that. Jesus elevates singleness and creates it as a, as a legitimate possibility. But he says to each and every single one of us, marriage cannot be the relationship that grounds you. It cannot hold that weight. It cannot do what you think that it can do. And when it does that, when that shift happens, when we elevate the relationship with Jesus above everything else, well, it allows us to bring that true identity as followers of Jesus, as beloved to all other relationships. Somewhere, Jesus' Venn diagram, his dream for our relationships looks something like this complex mess that I've put up on the wall for you. It's centered on relationship with him and everything else, well, everything else gets colored by that. Jesus says singleness is perfectly possible. He elevates that, says, no, you can pursue it, but whatever you do, you can't make marriage, you can't make any human relationship the center of your life. It just, they're not made to carry that kind of weight. Because every single one of those relationships will cause moments of tension. Every single one of those relationships will cause moments of, like, the moment you and I collide. It, it just is our nature. And so somewhere I would suggest this is true. There is no healthy we without a healthy me. No relationship you can enter into, no relationship I can enter into can be healthy if I'm not healthy. I bring all of that toxicity to a relationship and Jesus claims this, the only way you can be healthy is in relationship with him is in relationship with him. He's not ashamed of that, not shy about promoting that. That's one of the things he says regularly and often. Colossians chapter three, verse one says this, since you have been raised with Christ, set your hearts on things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. For you died and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. When Christ who is your life appears, then you will appear with him in glory. It picks up on this idea of life and says, you can't find it anywhere else. It's only in relationship with me. When you get that part right, every other relationship becomes stronger. But if you try and make any relationship the centerpiece of life, ultimately it just doesn't carry that kind of burden. This is a quote from Henry Nowen. As soon as someone accuses me or criticizes me, as soon as I'm rejected, left alone or abandoned, I find myself thinking, well, that proves once again that I'm a nobody, I'm no good. I deserve to be pushed aside, forgotten, rejected, and abandoned. Self-rejection is the greatest enemy of the spiritual life because it contradicts the sacred voice that calls us the beloved. Being the beloved constitutes the core truth of our existence. We began with this idea of rejection. Every single relationship has moments of rejection, whether intended or not intended. The best marriages have moments of rejection, a moment where the choice of me impacts you. Every single human relationship has that. And every time we make them the centerpiece of our life, we experience what he is talking about here. All we can do is rely on that central relationship that calls us beloved. Being the beloved constitutes the core truth of our existence. Brennan Manning says this, define yourself radically as one beloved by God. This is the true self. Every other identity is illusion. What Paul suggests is this, everybody has to do this. Uh, To be healthy, everybody has to define themselves radically as beloved by God with no exceptions. Somewhere, Paul suggests this is easier to do if you're not married. Because marriage is a distraction to this. It has the tendency to take the place of relationship with God more than any other relationship. There is no healthy we without a healthy me. Before we go anywhere in relationship with this series, one of the things I'd just love to invite you to is to discover or rediscover that idea of healthy me. It begins with knowing you are beloved and that nothing else matters. Let's stand together. Aaron's gonna lead us in a song as a community, but I wanted to leave you some practices that might help you think through some elements of this. We've talked about singleness as this great, reasonable, perhaps better choice. Perhaps in your hospitality, in your relationships, one of the things you get to do is invite a single person into relationship with your family. Not as a project, not as a, like a blind date or something like that, but, but actually as a person. Maybe each of us as individuals get to do this. We get to turn our attention Godward in key moments. What, what I mean by that is this. The joy of being married is you have someone to bounce ideas off. You have someone to share within moments of stress. The tendency is that that becomes the first point of call and yet the constant invitation of God is, make me the first point of call in those moments of stress, in those moments where you want direction. Communicate with me before anybody, however important they are to you. Maybe you wanna pay attention to moments where you feel like you need to pretend for me that's when I notice I'm operating in a false sense of I'm not God's beloved I'm not valued I'm not important and, and maybe it's something just to pay attention to and maybe if you read Colossians chapter 3 each day it will remind you your life is hidden with Christ in God you are beloved you are chosen your relationship status is not the most important thing about you whether that's good or bad Healthy we is only possible with a healthy me. Jesus, as we just contemplate and need for you, you invite us into the centrality of relationship with you. I'm so glad that there are so many good relationships in this building. There are people who are deeply in love, the people who have been deeply in love, there are people that will be deeply in love, And yet we know from experience that every time we're in a human relationship, there is that collision of me and you. There's that collision of what I want and what somebody else wants. And the only thing that grounds us, the only thing that can handle the weight of being central to our lives is you. Help us, God, to pursue that health, to pursue you and to make you central for every single one of us that is grieving the loss of a loved one. Remind us that we are still beloved, still valued. Help us to keep you centered, Jesus. Amen. If God is working in your life through this ministry, join us by partnering with us. You can give online at southfellowship.org slash give. And thanks for listening. We hope you have a great rest of your day.